tonight we are going to continue in Acts 18 and then go into Acts 19. We'll begin down in verse 18, read through chapter 19, verse 7 or so. Uh, and this kind of, this little section is in between some bigger important sections. And we've talked about this in Acts, that there are these big milestone uh, uh, passages about what God was doing at this church or that church and what God was doing at Jerusalem, at Antioch, Samaria. Um, and now as we go into Europe, we'll, we've seen what he's done at Philippi, what he's done at Corinth. Next week, we'll talk about what he does at Ephesus. Um, but tonight is sort of a, an in-between passage or in-between passages, um, interstitially kind of connecting these major narratives, um, Acts 18, verse 18 through uh, the first of 19. Um, this is going to lead into Paul's ministry at Ephesus, uh, but it's, it's not, doesn't have as much flash to it as maybe the next section will, but it's no less important. And I wanted to emphasize that as we've studied Acts, there are some smaller passages that are just as important as the bigger, more renowned ones. Um, often, these little in-between narratives uh, carry a similar theme. Um, so when Luke kind of puts them together, they may not be connected by the characters or the setting, but they are knit together thematically. So Luke wants us to know kind of what happens behind the scenes in between the bigger events, and they usually are connected by some theme or by some idea. Now, pay attention to that as you read the Bible, any book of the Bible, pay attention, um, because often between the major events, between the Red Seas and, or between the Passovers and the Red Sea, or between, you know, Mount Carmel and, 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 you know, Elisha doing a miracle, there's some things in between that often get missed or missed or overlooked um, that are just as important. Um, and, and often, as in any narrative, the little breaks in between give you a chance to kind of soak in all you've just just read about and also kind of see how God is doing things in the valleys and, and, and in the smaller um, settings. Uh, given an opportunity to spotlight the minor characters, minor events, smaller events, um, they might not carry the impact or the weight as the more memorable ones, but they are still important to God and they have as great an effect on the kingdom and its growth as anything. And I think that's important. That's an, it's an important thing that we study these shorter segmented passages because most of us, um, God has done a lot in our lives, but we don't feel like we've had the Red Sea moments or we don't have as many Red Sea or Jordan River or Goliath moments like we read about in the Bible or as we've read in Acts, some of the miracles. A lot of times uh, our lives are smaller scale, smaller scope, and yet God is just as active. Um, it's still God's activity and it still features his people and his plans, but often we don't recognize him in those smaller areas, in those less flashy areas, in those what may feel like a, a smaller or a lesser scale or scope. Yet God is still and nonetheless active and present. And, and I want to talk about that as we get into this passage tonight. Um, Zechariah 4 is a verse that I've committed to memory a long time ago. Uh, God says, who has despised the day of small things? Or why would you despise, or literally, why would you look down on, or why would you think less of the day that doesn't seem like to have a lot going on in it? Or a day that doesn't seem like it carries as much significance? And that might be a lot of days for us, if we're being honest, right? That might be a lot of seasons for you as a child of God. And sometimes it can be discouraging because you just don't feel like God is doing as much in you, through you, around you as you hear about him doing in other people's lives maybe but yet the bible says 
don't despise those days. For these seven rejoice, and, and that's talking about the seven spirits of God, and that's just kind of giving an idea of how big God is and how many different ways that God works from different angles. These seven rejoices see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. And, and, and the plumb line there references uh, what was used to make sure the wall that was being built, literally the foundation that was being built on any given structure, the plumb line was necessary to make sure that that structure was centered and that structure was level. You see what he's saying there? That sometimes God is laying the foundation for what's coming next. And the foundation doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but it's necessary for what's going to be built on top. So don't despise the, day, despise the day of small things because that is what God, where God is preparing to launch something greater. Honestly, what often comes next may not be understood until we get to heaven. It's not always what's around the corner here on earth. It's what's around the corner when we get to heaven. If, and, and, and honestly, sometimes we look so much for there to be a payoff on this side of things. And, and sometimes that doesn't come. If we're waiting for one, we've still not learned to live by faith. We're still living by sight. And what has been apparent throughout the book of Acts, what's apparent throughout the whole Bible, is those that walk by sight will never have peace. If you walk by sight, we will never have peace because we are always conditioned and sensitive by what we see and what we feel. And if you are living by sight and by feeling, you will never have peace. You always feel like something's missing. You always feel like there's just not enough there or not enough con you know, confirmation. Now, speaking of sight, it's in, it's in these interstitial episodes that we're going to encounter some things that appeal to appearance and deal with appearances. We're also going to meet a new character who is still living by sight completely. So all this is really important for our conversation tonight. Our goal is to close our eyes, if you will, and allow God to reveal what's going on behind the scenes, behind the, behind the surface of the text to show us what may not be obvious to us or the characters featured. Um, our conversation tonight is going to be around a topic that is well-trodden uh, ground, or it should be for any studied Christian. Um, it, it's going to be about how while we focus, or while our focus is often on the outside, what matters most is on the inside. What we often focus is what we can see and what we can feel, but often what matters most, and what really what matters most, is what's on the inside. Now, the outside is important insofar that it, pre it presents what's on the inside. It protects what's on the inside. The Bible teaches us and has tons of verses and passages on this very subject. But even still, we are still very guilty of, of and prone towards shifting our focus to the outside. Maybe because we are, of course, fleshly creatures. We often pay too much attention to what's on the outside but we pay little attention to what's on the inside, what God is doing behind the scenes, what God is wanting to do inside of us. We often put so much emphasis on the physical, on the literal, that we often overlook and miss the spiritual. On the other side of the coin, we can also easily underestimate physical symptoms of a much deeper issue that the outside, the physical, often reflects what's going on on the inside, whether good or whether bad. So much... So no matter which end of the spectrum we're dealing with, it's important to ask the question and consider the question. 
What is the heart of this? What's happening within? What's on the inside of this? Our conversation, what our goal tonight is that we begin to look past the surface. We begin to look under the surface. We begin to peel back the layers and begin to pay more attention to what's going on on the inside because what's going on on the inside reveals our connection to God. Now, religion stakes everything on appearance. Religion is obsessed with what you can see and what you can touch. Culture and society are no different. Everything is an art show. Everything is an art contest. You know, how, how does it look? How does it appear? Religion is so very shallow when it comes to what actually pleases God? Religion has a very, very shallow list of things. Oh, this pleases God. Do this, wear that, act like this. You'll please God. But at the same time, religion is very absolute and judgmental about what displeases God. Religion loves to point the finger at what displeases God, but religion is very shallow about what actually pleases God. So pay attention to that. In yourselves and others, in, in, in religion, might, maybe you'll realize that you're following this path. We all do in so many ways. Jesus quoted Isaiah during a critique of the Pharisees with Matthew 15, which is from, uh, 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 from the Old Testament. Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So Jesus says, Listen, y'all, you're good at being religious. The outside looks squeaky clean, but I need to talk to you about what's going on inside of you because it's not as things appear. He says, You are actually upholding doctrines that don't affect the heart but actually are doing damage to the heart and, and, and misrepresenting the Lord. Of course, we're all familiar when God told Samuel to go and look for the next king of Israel. Israel had already made a mistake once choosing the tallest and the most handsome to rule the nation, disregarding and undervaluing the heart of the man. They got a rotten, conceited, insecure madman as their king. God rebuked him and said to Samuel, I'm replacing him with a man after my own heart. Prepared for the job. So Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and mistakenly proposes man after man to God. He says, God, what about this guy? What about this guy? This guy looks great. This guy seems great. This guy appears to be the one for the job. And God says, no, 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 no. There's still one here, but it's not what you're thinking. It's not who you're thinking. And God tells Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected those sorts. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. How universal that verse is in advice to us, isn't it? We often judge people by what we see, but what matters most is the character. What matters most is what's going on inside so what does that mean for us on this side of history? A few things I think we can extract from the verses and truths we've discussed so far. God is not impressed, interested, or invested in appearance, aesthetics, or actions that only engage the flesh. Now this might rattle us a little bit because I'm religious, you're, we're all religious in some ways. But I don't I, I don't think I can be too definitive with this statement. God, based on what we just read from Samuel, God is not impressed. He is not interested in, he is not invested, as in he doesn't have any passion for appearance, aesthetics, as in a certain type of, of thing, actions that engage only our flesh. God's heart does not move based on those things at all. 
Now, our heart definitely moves based on those things, right? When we're teenagers, right? You know, when we're uh, first, you know, falling in love with people, right? We're all about appearance. When we are religious, we're all about what things look like, what things sound like. We're all about that in all different ways from our emotions to our religion, right? We're all about appearance, aesthetics, and actions that engage our flesh. But God is not interested or invested or impressed by those things. God's focus is on the heart. God does, however, use means and elements of this world to make a deeper impact. So that doesn't mean that God doesn't use appearances and aesthetics and things to make an impact. He does. But ultimately, God sees those surface level things as entry points to make a greater spiritual connection. So you see, they have a purpose. There are means to an end. And if they don't have a deeper purpose, then they're wasting their place. So why are we talking about this? Acts 18 and Acts 19, in these few passages that we're going to read, are going to remind us that outward expressions have their place but need to be put in their place. Does that make sense? They have a place, but they best be put in their place because their purpose is to point to Jesus, our devotion to him in his dwelling in us. Their purpose is to reflect that. And if they don't reflect that immediately, if the immediate point and, 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 and obvious reason for those things isn't pointing to Jesus, reflecting our devotion and, and reminding us of his presence, then we might get ourselves distracted by, by stuff that's not gonna do any good. First little episode we're gonna look at is Acts 18, verse 18 through 22. It'd be so easy to skip over this, but there's something in here that I just don't want us to, to not understand what's going on. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while in Corinth and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centuria for he had taken a vow. Now it'd be really easy to say, we'll talk about that some other time and not talk about it, but I want to. Verse 19, he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he entered the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer with them, he did not consent. He took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return to you again, God willing, and he sailed to Ephesus. And when he landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So here's just a little, you know, run-of-the-mill travel log. Paul went here, went there. Oh, by the way, Paul had to get a haircut? Like, what's that all about? He had taken a vow? Like, why, why does Luke even bother telling us that? Maybe you never pictured, maybe you've never imagined what Paul looked like, but apparently for the longest time, Paul has had a pretty, uh, has, has had a pretty long uh, hair. We don't, maybe you imagine Paul, um, uh, you know, as a, as a man in our age, a man in our era. Uh, but up to this point, uh, when, when it says somebody got their hair cut in these times, it didn't mean they just got it trimmed as short as mine. It means that it must have been really long and then he had it shaved off. They, they was only, you know, they, they could trim hair. But in this instance, Paul was going from long hair to no hair. Now, this features Paul fulfilling or finishing what was known as a Nazarite vow. In the Old Testament, um, those Nazarite vows were, were um, detailed in the book of Numbers. I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, but this is Paul concluding a vow. We don't know when he took it. We don't know when he committed to this. Uh, nonetheless, he did it. But why did he do it? And I want to talk about that because, not because I think all of us could walk out of here saying, hey, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow, but I want you to understand why Paul would have done that 
and why similar outward expressions in our lives have a purpose, but there's a spiritual reason behind it. And, and I think it's so, it's so easy to get hung up on the outward expression and miss the spiritual purpose. So I want to talk about this for just a minute. And we've already prefaced it with a lot of, lot of truth um, from God's word. But let's first talk about the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. So this was just a way in the Old Testament someone was wanting to say, I want to have my heart full of God. Kind of like a fast that you might would take. I want to make sure that I am wholly set apart to God. And part of this custom, again, this is so cultural, it's hard for us to relate to it. We don't understand all the details, but this is just how it was done. All the days of this vow... No razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, uh, hair of his head grow long. Now, again, in, in the way the Jews believed that the longer, you know, the, the, the hair being long was like a covering, a veil over the head. Uh, and that veil was a way of concealing the glory of God, calling back to Moses on the mountain. A lot of these things are really lost on us because they don't really have a correlation to our faith or to our practices. But this, again, was time and place. It was their culture. And this was a thing that Paul was doing to help himself stay devoted to God. You think, well, what's the purpose of that? Or why did he do this? Did he have to not cut his hair? Of course, he didn't have to, but this was part of their culture, part of their custom, and it's something that he chose and felt led to do. Now, if you read the whole chapter, the vow was to be completed by taking the cut hair, taking all the locks that you cut off, and taking it to the temple and making a sacrifice adjacent to the temple. Now, Paul doesn't do that, and Paul would have never sacrificed at the temple after Jesus's death because Jesus was the full and final sacrifice. Of course, Paul never made another sacrifice, but he still took part in this custom of growing his hair out as an outward sign of an inward desire, an outward sign of inward desire. The Jewish people were big on these types of ceremonial gestures. Now, these don't really have a place in our culture as much as they did then. We have our own ways that we do things, customs and and rituals. But this sort of thing is not really something that we do or talk about. But the Jewish people were big on these type of ceremonial gestures. Their religion was filled with ceremonial rituals and rites. Circumcision was one. Uh, baptism, we don't think about it, but they were ba- they baptized uh, themselves. They would go into the temple. There was a bronze wash pan in the front of the temple courtyard. They would wash themselves. Now, they weren't dumped in the water, but they would stand at the, wa- at the brazen, and they would literally wash themselves in the, in the bronze laver before they would take any farther steps. Baptism was one. Um, the Passover meal was one. When they ate the Passover, the, the body of the lamb was there. The, the blood of the lamb was there. Now, we know where that was taken with Christianity, but The point is, they had many, 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 many rituals and ceremonies that were outward expressions of their faith, and they were ways that they they used to keep and remain devoted. So I believe that the Bible uh, endorses these sorts of rites and rituals insofar that they carry that purpose, that they help us stay faithful. Outward signs carry inward desires that, hey, I want to be faithful to God, so I'm going to fast. I'm going to do it. I'm going to come to the altar. I'm going to pray before the whole church. I'm going to take communion. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to join the church. These outward expressions, again, they don't mean anything in and of themselves, but they carry an inward desire. 
And again, we are fleshly people. Doing things physically helps remind our minds and helps give us that tangible thing to hold and to handle that keeps us on that pathway. And believe us, we, believe me, we need those things because we are very quick to forget and very quick to get distracted. It's like this, you make reminders for yourselves, don't you? Those reminders keep you from forgetting things, right? The Bible gives us these sorts of things to remind, to tell us that we too need to be reminded. These outward expressions depict a spiritual meaning. Now, obviously, these sorts of things were carried over to the church, but they were rooted in Judaism. We still baptize. We still take, we do communion, the body and blood of Christ. We lay hands on people with anointing prayers. Um, we, we believe the church is the body of Christ. We believe the incarnation is represented by the people of God in the house of God. So we have these same outward signs, don't we? Now, if God leads you to take a Nazarite vow, God bless you for it, but it's not going to end up at an altar sacrificing a lamb. That doesn't happen. But again, it's an outward sign of an inward expression of it, and it's leading you to a deeper spiritual place. Paul still carried out many of his Jewish traditions, and I think that there's cultural things that we have as Americans that someone else may have from uh, their ethnicity. There's cultural things that we may do that, again, have no spiritual value other than that they help us stay focused and stay faithful. Paul carried out his Jewish traditions because they helped him visualize and verbalize his faith. And as a Christian, he knew their true desire and intended purpose. Now, let me say this. As a pastor, my responsibility and our responsibility to church is to help you visualize and verbalize your faith. The, only, the reason we sing what we sing, the reason we worship like we worship is not because we're bowing at some altar of tradition or some altar of the Bible says it's got to be done like that because there really isn't some, there, is, there isn't a lot of things the Bible says it's got to be done a certain way when it comes to how you worship. But the purpose of it is what gets me closer to God. And our goal is to visualize and verbalize our faith in a way that gets us closer to Jesus. So let me say this, things that help us visualize and verbalize our faith are fine insofar as they take us to a greater place of passion and they grow our faith. If, this is a big deal, if the visualization and the verbalization of what we ascribe to or are most attracted to, if that becomes more important than the purpose it was intended for, it actually becomes a stumbling block in your spiritual growth and it ceases to serve any good. Do you hear me? There are some people that would read this Nazarite vow saying, oh, everybody's got to you know, cut their hair a certain length or not cut their hair at all. And they get so hung up on the, on the visualization and the verbalization, it ceases to do any good at all. And there are places you'll walk in and they'll tell you that you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to you know, put your hair a certain way, wear certain clothes, all this stuff that doesn't do a bit of good in, terms, in any spiritual way at all. It may help somebody stay faithful or somebody visualize and verbalize their faith, but there's no law that says, hey, it's got to be done that way. And the church loses track whenever we try to make laws, commandments of men, out of things that God simply said can be tools to help you. But they are not laws that rule you. Does that make sense? Now think about this. There are many denominations, many traditions, many styles of Christianity in the church. And now you may say, well, there's only one right way. You know, we've all got our, our, our passions. 
God may not be pleased with most of them. He may love all of them. I don't know. I don't know what God's opinion is about all the different ways the church goes on. All I know is the church belongs to Jesus, and he allows all these different styles and traditions and denominations to persist. The one that exalts Jesus and proclaims the gospel, they're serving a kingdom purpose, and God is pleased with them. But so often, here's what happens, and we're all so different. So often, these visualizations and these verbalizations become more valuable to us. Isn't it true? So often, the way we visualize and verbalize our faith becomes more valuable than the vessel that they're meant to carry. Isn't that an indictment on the church in 2021? I mean, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm professionally a part of the church. I will be the first to say, absolutely. Often the way I visualize it and the way I verbalize it becomes more important to me than the vessel that I think I'm, that, that I believe they're supposed to be carrying. Let me tell you something, church. If, if we became more as passionate about the vessel as we are about the way we visualize things and verbalize things when it comes to Christianity in the church, whew, we would actually get something done. You may not want to amen that, but that's true. There's religion in us that says, I don't know about that, Justin. I think it needs to be, I think you need to be more hardcore about how it needs to be done this way. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And, and, and that's when they need to be abandoned lest they do more damage than good. My point is this, and I know this is maybe a mountain out of a molehill, but I wanted to address this because it'd be so easy to say, well, man, that's weird. Why'd he cut his hair? Uh, but I wanted to let you know this. These things need to be put in their place lest they keep us from our place. Now, Luke doesn't hide it from us. The Bible doesn't hide these things from us. The Bible doesn't say they have no good or no purpose. They do. Everything physical must be run through and run by and understood through the spiritual lens. This, is, this might be the, the most inspired thing that we've ever talked about in church. We don't boast about what we do or how we do it. I'm talking about we as Christians and we as a church. We, and if you do, we shouldn't. We do not boast about what we do or how we do it. We rest in why we do it and who we experience through it. Does that make sense? We do not boast. Religious people say, well, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And that's the most important thing. They have no rest because they're so insecure. They're trying to get other people to, to question what they do. We rest in why we do it and who we experience through it because we know the spiritual purpose of it. Jesus said this in John chapter six. If it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. He says, that's the problem. We get so hung up on what we see and how it looks and the appearance. He said, that's why. The The issue is you just don't believe. That's the crux of the matter. Many don't believe. They just go through the motions. So my word to you on this is make sure your passion is not rooted in what you do or how you do it when it comes to your faith, but why you do it and who you do it for. That is a plea from my heart of hearts. May your passion not be in what you do as a Christian, how you do it as a Christian, but why you do it. Paul didn't say, hey, I took a Nazarite vow. Everybody else needs to. No. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to get closer to God. Who was he doing it for? Jesus. But he's not going to say everybody needs to do that same thing or how you need to do it is, is the way that he did it. Now, let's move on in closing and read 
about Apollos real quickly. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But Aquila, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he desired to cross Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is, again, a fellow that we're only going to... This is like watching a sitcom, and there's one episode that features a guy that you never hear about again. Apollos was a golden-tongued, well-educated Jewish scholar. He was eloquent and rhetorical in his speaking skills. He was a bullet the church needed and wanted in its chamber. However, Apollos had not heard the full gospel yet. Now, this was an issue in the early days of the church uh, because there were many Jews expecting a Messiah... Based on Old Testament teaching, they believed a Messiah could be coming imminently, but they had not understood the full, they had not realized that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, in fact, some major Jewish figures we meet in the New Testament are products of Judaism's expectation of the Messiah. Coming off the exile, they believed that God was going to restore the Davidic kingdom. If you read the Old Testament prophets, the latter half of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, they're all talking about God going to send a Messiah very soon. Isaiah 40, you've heard this before. Isaiah says, in the wilderness, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. This was a messianic prophecy. So after the return to the land, the temple was rebuilt. They believed God's glory was going to return imminently. Some challenged this notion and said, you know what, that's not literal. God's not going to send a real Messiah. That's just symbolic. He's just going to build us back up. Some swore by it and thought they were the ones that were going to see him first. And then there was some that thought that God rejected the temple and its establishment, and they went off in the wilderness and formed their own commune, trying to figure out how God might send a Messiah to them or, and show him to them. The three parties that arose from these three different ways were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. You may not have heard of that last group, but you've definitely heard of the first two. The Sadducees uh, didn't believe that God was going to send a Messiah. They thought that was just symbolic. It wasn't literal, that God was just going to build Israel back up if they all just did the right thing. The Pharisees thought that God was going to send a Messiah and that he was going to show them first and that they had to be good so that God would bless them with the revelation. The Essenes were hermits that went out into the wilderness across the Jordan River and lived as, as wild men, not, not morally, but you know, lived off the land. And they believed that God was going to show them something special. And one of the Essenes was a man named John, son of Zacharias. You know him as John the Baptist. Now, John, the son of the priest, left the temple establishment of age and became a part of this group called the Essenes. John came proclaiming that passage from Isaiah, make way a highway in the desert. John, in chapter, Mark chapter 1, appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins. Now, many believed that John's message was true, and they expected a Messiah to come, uh, you'll remember John, uh, again, proclaimed that, that he was not the Messiah, but that God was sending the Messiah. And John said that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, one day, John's preaching to a big crowd, and lo and behold, he says to them, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus walks by, and he says, There he is. I told you I was pointing to him. I'm literally pointing to him. John proclaimed that as, a, as baptism, it was a way of getting ready, that God was sending something, turning our hearts to God, getting ready for what God was going to do. Jesus, he pointed and said, that's the guy. John's movement dwindled and people said, John, are you upset about it? John says, no, not at all. He must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. Now, with that being said, let's continue to read a little bit about Apollos. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, finding some disciples. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Apollos was no doubt a disciple of John. He was baptized in the Jordan River way back, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah But Apollos had not yet heard of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he had not yet heard that it wasn't about repenting and trying to do better. It was about being filled with the Holy Spirit and being made new from the inside. This is so important. Going back to all that outward stuff we were talking about. Maybe Apollos expected a kingdom like, dis, like the disciples felt, a physical kingdom about prosperity and earthly goods. We don't know, but it appeared to be all outward to him. He had not received the Holy Spirit. He had not embraced the true meaning of Christianity. I think a lot of Jesus' followers are like that. They went through the motions. They've been baptized. They believe that you need to turn to God, that Jesus is the Lord. But they haven't had a personal connection with him. They see him as a way to improve their worldly status, as a way to advance their worldly condition. But what God wants is our hearts. And when you look somebody in the eye and you say, is the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Do you have a connection with God because of your faith in Christ? Is it personal to you? Is it inward to you? All that outward stuff doesn't mean a thing if there isn't something in here. Paul meets Apollos and introduces him to the true message of Christianity, baptizes him into the church. And it says in verse 6 that Paul laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. And the men were about 12 in all. So Apollos' whole little movement was saved. Apollos had a head knowledge, but not a heart possession. He was full of wisdom, but no passion. All the knowledge and religion in the world won't do us a bit of good if we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. We can sing the right songs, wear the right stuff, go through the right rituals, but if we don't have a personal relationship and don't understand the spiritual aspect of it all, it's worthless. If we don't have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it's worthless. The Holy Spirit informs us that there's a greater work at hand that God wants to do inside of us, transforming us, syncing us up with his plans. Salvation begins with repentance, but it's not on us to make ourselves better. It's on the Holy Spirit to restore us and regenerate us. 
The Holy Spirit wants to do a work inside of us. It begins by being full of praise and worship. In the Acts, the, when they would speak in tongues, it was a way for all these different cultures to recognize that God was doing a similar work in all of them. They all spoke different languages, and tongues was a way when they praised God in this angelic language, it was a way they all realized God is doing this. You see it when God did something new in a new territory. Samaria, when Cornelius got saved, here when Apollos gets saved. But more importantly, we see his heart is changed. If you read Colossians, you'll see what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how God changes us from the inside. And if you read Colossians, they don't mention anything religious, anything rituals, anything outwardly. It's all about the inside. And the culmination of that passage is it's about being a people of praise and worship, speaking the word of God, speaking the power of God. This is God's desire to end for us as believers that we internally possess and walk with the Holy Spirit, that we become people of praise. What's on the outside shouldn't be making much of anybody but Jesus. That's what sets apart religion and Christianity and that's what this passage, these two few passages of Acts, that's why I think they're so unique and so special because we see how God took people that were so focused on the outside and made it personal to them. We see how Paul did something that was personal to him, but wasn't for everybody. We see how Apollos was caught up in this religion that had a little bit of knowledge about Jesus, but didn't know the full picture and didn't have the full gospel. And when he got the heart full of the Holy Spirit, it changed him. He goes on to be an absolute advocate for the church, as will anybody that is full of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be a people that use the outward expressions that God gives us to drive our personal devotion. To not make us more religious, but make us more full of the Spirit. To make us more dedicated and devoted to Jesus Christ. If it's not filling your heart with the Spirit of God, it's not doing any good. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, your heart will be growing and be getting full and full, fuller and fuller of the spirit of the, of the Lord. I hope this has been a blessing to you, church. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you tonight on behalf of this word. May our hearts be full of the spirit of God. He's real and he wants to live inside of you. And all it takes is saying, Jesus is Lord. I want that heart possession of the spirit of God.